invite you to open up this morning to Luke 24. On this morning, we say to one another, He is risen. He is risen indeed. And those are words of great comfort and great encouragement and hope. They're words filled with joy and gladness. And yet, outside of these walls and outside in our world, come Monday morning, there's not always a lot of joy and gladness, encouragement and comfort, is there? In fact, this week, sometimes people will say, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And they mean by that, Things may look dark on Friday when Jesus is placed in the tomb, but don't worry, hope will dawn on Sunday morning. But here's the thing. If it's Friday and Sunday's coming, you know what that means is, well, Monday follows Sunday. And nobody really likes Monday, do they? It's, it's kind of uh, oh, back to the humdrum of the week. Point is, outside of the hope of Christ, the hope of Easter, there is a lot of despair and sadness and depression around. And it, not just in the world, but even those who proclaim he is risen are not exempt from falling into periods of depression and darkness. You know, recent decades have shown an alarming climb in the rates of depression and anxiety. From 1999 to 2019, in a 20-year span, the rate of suicide in this country increased 33%. And even in this past year, we've seen major increases. Uh, the number of those who are reporting to be depressed and struggling, seeking help, has increased in manifold ways. Loneliness and isolation, of course, contributes. Exacerbated then by lockdowns that have sent the whole situation spiraling into further decline. Some studies show that the rates of depression in the U.S. have tripled in the last year. And obviously, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it's the current climate and the things going on. But let's, let's face it, there is so much complexity and challenges today that can be overwhelming, and a lot of people feel like they're unable to cope with that. Point is, look around and you will find people who are deeply depressed. And frankly, who can blame them, Right? I mean, if, if all you're looking at is this world and what is out there, there's a lot of reasons to, to be depressed, to despair. After all, any solutions that men offer fall short. If someone says that they're coming to save the day, oftentimes they have their own self-interests at heart. What are we to do? Where is joy on this Easter morning? Well, let me ask this question. Do you come to this Easter with a heavy heart? I think there's many of us who may not be setting up an appointment with a therapist, yet who struggle with feelings of depression at times, despair. What hope is there? Well, as we come to this day, this special day, there is an answer. And I don't mean a pill that'll fix it all. I don't mean something that's just going to take it all away, a miracle cure. But we do find in the resurrection of Jesus the key for true joy and true peace. See, knowing Jesus is the key to everlasting joy and peace. That's an important way to say it, by the way. 
Because it's not just the temporary. And that's what many in our world are looking for. Uh, The many depressed people and people who are feeling like things are coming apart want a quick fix. They want the, the feelings to go away. They want to feel better, even if it's just for a moment. Our world is very much like the famous Stanford marshmallow experiment. You probably are familiar with this, where they took a a number of kids in the study, and they offered them each a marshmallow, and if they waited 15 minutes, they would get two, testing the the thought of delayed gratification. Many of the kids would grab the marshmallow and stuff it in their mouth immediately. Some, however, waited for the second marshmallow. Our world is kind of like that. They're, They're looking for an answer to depression, and they want the marshmallow, and they just reach out and grab it. But there's a a longer-term answer, and that is found in knowing Jesus, the key to eternal joy and peace. See, if we're only after joy and peace for now, in the moment, we can look to any number of things to take away the feelings. But there's only one source for everlasting joy and peace, and that is in knowing Jesus, having a relationship with with him. That doesn't mean that every day is going to be sunshine, but it does mean that we can have an abiding peace, an abiding joy that is not fleeting. Turn with me this morning to Luke 24, because leading up to this morning, we've been calling our series Crossing Paths with the Redeemer. And we looked at these individuals who have crossed paths with Jesus in the final hours of his trial and his crucifixion, and now the resurrection. And our text this morning takes that figure quite literally. Because what we're going to see here is two individuals who literally cross paths with Jesus, and they don't even realize it. This may be one of the most famous resurrection appearances of Jesus to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I would describe this passage as a travel narrative. Now, some scholars point out that Luke likes travel narratives. In fact, chapters 9 through 19 of Luke, a major portion of the book, is all this travel narrative. Jesus going from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, a travel narrative is an interesting thing. It usually involves several episodes in different locales. Uh, a good example would be Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days or his 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Those are both travel narratives. They have lots of episodic moments and they're in different exotic places. Well, in this case, we have a travel narrative, which it boiled down is this. It's a story of people going from one place to another. That's a travel narrative. Well, in this passage, we don't have a lot of episodes. We just have one. But it's a story of a journey. A journey that two men make from Jerusalem to Emmaus. But it's more than just a journey from one city to another. It's actually a spiritual journey that they take. They go from confusion to an understanding of Jesus. We'll see that as we travel along with them. I want us to journey with these two men this morning, these two individuals, as they set out on this journey. We're going to follow them in this path. The journey develops first along these lines. First of all, it starts from Jerusalem to Emmaus. That may be the most obvious point of all. This whole text is sometimes called the road to Emmaus text, passage. Let's look at it. Verse 13 starts. 
Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. Here are these two disciples are on a journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and it sets us up for a discussion, first of the background to this whole thing, the background. Now, the Bible says here that it was the same day. Do you see that in verse 13? Two of them were traveling that same day. That is, the same day of the resurrection. The same day Jesus rose, that Sunday, these two individuals were traveling to Emmaus. Now, we have a little geographical background here as well tells us that they were going to this place, a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, the Bible never tells us exactly where. Now, we know it was seven miles, but what direction? We don't know. The site has never been totally identified. There are several suggestions. People think it might have been here, may have been there, but we don't really know exactly where Emmaus was, except for that it was seven miles from Jerusalem which is a nice walk, but easily done in a day. The reason Emmaus is probably not known today and the site has been lost is probably because it was a tiny little town. Uh, there's two things that point to this. First of all, the fact that nobody even knew it was there. Luke apparently felt necessary to tell in his, his readers they were heading to the village of Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem, because you've probably never heard of it before. In fact, people even living in the area may never have heard of Emmaus before. It was probably a tiny, sleepy little town. In modern times, it would be the kind of place where they might have a convenience store, might even have a traffic light, but not much more than that. Uh, we might call it a wide spot in the road. It was probably nothing too significant. In fact, the word village in verse 13 means an unwalled city or a group of houses. So there's no wall, there's no fortification, it's just a few houses, a little hamlet. Now why were these two disciples headed to Emmaus? We don't know. It could have been that they lived there, they'd been up in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover and now they're headed home. It may have been that they had family there they were visiting, or it could have been that they were headed somewhere else and they just had to pass through Emmaus and it was a good waypoint on the trip. Nevertheless, that's their destination. Today's trip, reach Emmaus, seven miles. And as they walk, they talk with one another. What are they talking about? This gives us a little bit of the historical background. It says in verse 14, they, they were talking about all the things which had happened. Now, the big event in Jerusalem has been the crucifixion, the burial, and now resurrection of Jesus. That has been front page news. The Jerusalem Post has had it in big, bold letters every morning, talking about the trial and all the events that had taken place. This was on everybody's mind, on everybody's lips. So they're talking about this, confused, perplexed. Uh, they were confused, of course, by the trial and the crucifixion. All the disciples were. Even the twelve were scattered. All the disciples were confused about what was going on. Furthermore, this morning there's these reports swirling around about these women who went to the tomb and it was empty and angels and all of this. It's all trying to put the pieces together. 
as they are walking along the road, we have to ask, who are these two disciples? Again, the Bible just tells us that they were, there was two of them. You might say, well, two of who? Well, if you go back to verse 9, it says there that the women went and reported these things to the eleven and all the rest. All the rest. See, there were other disciples besides the twelve, or in this case, the eleven, because one is dead. Jesus had twelve full-time followers, if we can use that language. They were people who were with him all the time. But they weren't the only people who believed in Jesus. There were others who couldn't follow Jesus around 24-7, and yet who believed in him. They were the others. So these two disciples were probably some from that group. Not full-time disciples, not full-time followers like the 12, but certainly believers, certainly those who had kept track of Jesus' ministry through the years. Now, who are they? Well, the Bible tells us one of their names is Cleopas, found in verse 18. Again, we know nothing really about him other than his name which has led all kinds of speculation as to the other traveler. So of these two travelers, you have Cleopas and then the second. Some people have hypothesized that maybe it was his wife and they were traveling together. Possible, it doesn't tell us that. Some have suggested it was maybe his son. Some have suggested other possibilities. Point is, we don't know. They were two disciples. That's all we need to know. And there are two followers of Jesus now confused by the recent turn of events. We see the, the background, the travelers, but also the stranger that comes upon them. Look at verses 15 and 16. So it was, was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So they're joined by this mysterious figure on the road to Emmaus. Now that might sound unusual to you. Like why is this guy joining them? Wouldn't that arouse some suspicion? Not really in the culture. You see, at that time, if you were traveling along one of these roads between cities, if you were met another traveler, it was wise to travel together. After all, there's strength in numbers. You know, if there's rogue bandits or wild animals out there, you'd be stronger in a group. So anytime there was multiple people traveling, they would sometimes team up. Today, we don't do this. You know, if somebody follows you out into the parking lot of the grocery store, you're going to be looking over your shoulder with your hand on your pepper spray, right? We don't travel in groups like this, but in this time, it would have been perfectly normal for this guy to have joined them, and they don't recognize him. The Bible says it's Jesus, but he, his identity is kept disclosed from them. It, it's, he is anonymous. Now, we don't know if he was wearing something, or, or ch- chances are the Lord just kept them from seeing It's the same thing, by the way, we see with Mary Magdalene at the tomb, remember? It says that she thought he was the gardener. Apparently, she didn't recognize him either. Whatever it was, he joins them and and inquires about them what they're talking about. Look at verse 17. He said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another and walk and are sad? You notice he identifies their emotional state. He recognizes that they're sad. They're filled with this despair, depression, sadness, grief, whatever you want to call it. But he asks, what kind of conversation is this? Now, there's a touch of humor in this, isn't there? Because they're talking about Jesus. And Jesus is the one asking the question. They don't know that, but Jesus says, hey, what are you guys talking about? 
And they respond, verse 18, uh, Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened here in these days? It's total disbelief on his part. He says to the stranger, you know, are you the only stranger in town? In other words, has your head been buried in the sand? How can you have not have heard what's going on? Again, it was front page news on every paper. But Jesus says in verse 19, then he said to them, what things? And the conversation that follows is a journey in itself. The simple trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus would have life-changing impact on these two individuals. And the story begins with them crossing paths with Jesus, even though they don't know it. At the end of this journey, though, their eyes are going to be opened. Just as their eyes are restrained at the beginning, they will be opened at the end. Let me simply point out at this point that meeting Jesus is a life-changing event, and it can happen anywhere. Now, when I say meeting Jesus, I'm not talking about a mystical experience or some kind of you know, vision where Jesus appears to someone in this ethereal moment. What I'm talking about is what takes place when a person comes to see and believe the truth about Jesus. When a person meets Christ and sees him as he is, yes, it is personal, but it's also objective. It can happen anywhere. Here it's this dusty road between Jerusalem and Emmaus. They cross paths with Jesus. They meet the Savior. It can happen anywhere. Uh, for me, it happened in my parents' bedroom when I was six years old. I met Jesus for the first time. I, I received his free gift. I was saved of my sins and saved unto an eternal life in heaven. Maybe for you it was a different place. Maybe for you it was in church. Maybe for some it will be this very morning on Easter Sunday we'll come to know and meet Jesus for the first time. It's a life-changing event. Knowing Jesus is the key to everlasting joy and peace. These men are filled with despair, but that's going to soon be changed because they meet Jesus on this dusty road. Not only is it a journey, though, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, it's also a journey from confusion to clarity. From confusion to clarity. In the aftermath of the crucifixion, confusion gripped all the disciples. The eleven, as well as any of those who followed Jesus. They're wondering to themselves, what happened? After the triumphal entry, hopes were high that Jesus would soon reign over Israel in fulfillment of the promises made to David. What was going on? This was an unexpected turn. Darkness had shrouded the land when Jesus was on the cross, and it still hung over the hearts of his disciples. Depression, discouragement, and doubt are really not too strong of words to describe what they're feeling at this point. And these two disciples on the road to Emmaus verbalized what I think all the followers of Jesus at this point were feeling. Now, Jesus says in verse 19, you know, what things? In other words, tell me about this. Tell me what it is that's making you so sad. So they explain in verse 19. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet mighty in deed and word before 
God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. He's going to go on and explain more of their confusion in a moment. But you notice what Cleopas says. He says, we're talking about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He calls him here a prophet. Now, some people point to this and try and say that these two disciples had a a wrong view of Jesus. You know, they only thought of him as a prophet, and that was their problem. They, they had misidentified Jesus. He was more than a prophet. I really don't think this is a matter of misidentification, because Jesus was, in fact, a prophet. In fact, they, they even notice here that Jesus is a prophet great in word and deed. So in other words, he's not just a prophet who delivers some messages from time to time. He's like Moses. He's like Elijah who did wonders and miracles and great works of power. This was a man unrivaled. So I don't think that it's, I don't think that their perception of Jesus is wrong. However, it might be a little too narrow. They say he's a great prophet in Israel. But notice their Experienced. Even though Jesus was condemned to death by the Jewish rulers, they say in verse 21, we were hoping he was going to redeem Israel. So as we look at these two disciples, we see that their hopes were dashed. Their hopes were dashed. Again, that was true not just of these two, but all the disciples at this point. They were hoping that Jesus would be the one who would redeem Israel. Here's an interest, and and again, this is where the benefit of studying the entire Gospel of Luke would happen. We come full circle when we get to 24. Because if you go back to the beginning of Luke, we have the the stories we always cover at Christmas time. The shepherds, and the field, and, and the manger, and all of that. Do you remember in the Christmas stories, there's a two characterizations. Jesus is taken to the temple, and he meets a man named Simeon in the temple who blesses Jesus. Here's what it describes of Simeon. He was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the comfort to come, the comforter who would restore and redeem. Also, a prophetess named Anna sees Jesus in the temple. And she praises God and then says that she spoke to all who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. So here we come full circle. Those who were looking for Jesus, looking for a redeemer when Jesus was born, are now at the end of his life wondering, what happened? We had all these hopes that had been built up over years and years, hoping that Jesus would be the one who would redeem. And now he's dead. Did we get something wrong? Were we off? Did we miss it? What happened? You'll notice also that it says they were looking for him and hoping that he would redeem Israel. That certainly implies, doesn't it, that they had an idea that Jesus was going to establish a government, reign as king over Israel, and bring in the messianic government. Where would they have gotten such an idea? From reading the Old Testament. Those were all things that the Messiah was going to do. Ah, but they missed something. Messiah was also going to suffer and die. They, they read the glory and the kingdom, and they missed 
the suffering. Now, Jesus will set up his kingdom. He will reign in righteousness and glory when he returns. But they missed a key element of the story. And that's the reason their hopes are dashed. They're wondering, did we turn, take a wrong turn somewhere? Someone once compared hope to a pane of glass. It's your house. You have windows that show into the outside. And if it's dark outside, what do you see when you look into the window? You see yourself. You see a reflection of what's inside. Instead of seeing what's beyond, and, and that glass hasn't changed at all, has it? It's just as clear and opaque as it was before. But now that it's dark outside, now that you can't see, all you see is a reflection back at yourself. Hope is like that in a way. When the light shines, you're able to see through with hope and see the future that God has planned. And you can see with hope and by faith. But when it's dark and when our perception is clouded, when we are in confusion, it's like darkness falls outside. And all you see then is a reflection back. That's how these disciples feel right now. They're looking and they can't see through the window. All they see is a reflection back. All, the hope that was once there is now shrouded in darkness. Their hopes are dashed. Not only that, their minds are perplexed. Look at verse 21. They were hoping that Jesus would redeem Israel. And then verse 22, yes, and certain women of our company also arrived from the tomb early, astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that he was, they had seen a vision of angels and that he said he was alive. And certain of those who were of us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So we were hoping, our hopes were dashed, and now we have this new news and we don't know what to make of it. These women go to the tomb and the stone is rolled away, they can't find his body. They haven't been able to sort this out. It's just a jumble. And instead of putting the pieces together from the Old Testament, they are left with just a scrambled bunch of puzzle pieces and no order or rhyme to it. Their minds are perplexed. The interesting thing about these disciples is for, for them, the final piece of evidence was missing. Yeah, we have an empty tomb. Yeah, there's a lot of things we don't understand. But you notice at the end of verse 24, but him they did not see. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff we don't get, but if we could just see Jesus, then it would make sense. But we haven't seen him yet, so we don't know what to believe. Their minds are perplexed. They don't understand what's going on. Finally, though, their eyes are opened. Their eyes were opened. Because Jesus steps in. Verse 25. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So thankfully, the story does not end with confusion, but moves towards clarity. The mysterious traveler on the road to Emmaus is about to give them a lesson they're never going to forget. And little did these individuals know, the one who walked with them was the Savior they longed to see. 
Their confusion was about to be cleared up by the only person qualified to explain it. Can you imagine this? A lesson in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, from Jesus himself. Wouldn't that be an incredible thing to have? I was thinking of a comparison. It would be like having Albert Einstein explain to you the theory of relativity. Who better? Of course, I still don't know if I would understand it. Or how about this? Imagine having Thomas Jefferson explain the U.S. Constitution to you. That would be pretty incredible. You know, one of those who drafted it. But here you have Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the author of Scripture, explaining Scripture. What an incredible moment. He starts, though, with a rebuke. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. That's not an insult. It's a recognition. Listen, you're missing it. You're missing a key element here. They were slow to believe what the prophets had said. They were missing key elements. And Jesus points that out. He says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? So they had missed what the prophets had to say about the suffering of the Messiah. And so he goes through the scriptures from Moses to the prophets, meaning the whole scope of scripture. Now, this does not mean that Christ is somehow hidden in every verse of the Old Testament. It does, however, mean that the Old Testament scriptures in specific places pointed forward towards the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The focus of Jesus' teaching here was on his suffering, the things that he must suffer. You wonder what verses he talked about here. I can only imagine that he must have addressed Isaiah 53, the suffering servant the one who would bear the sins of the people, who would himself lay down his life like sheep led to slaughter. It no doubt included Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted from the cross, and a number of other places, showing that it was not inconsistent for the Messiah to suffer and die as well as reign. The disciples' eyes are slowly opened here progressively opened. It doesn't say here that it suddenly all clicked. In fact, it's not until a little bit later that things start to really come together for them. But their eyes are beginning to open because Jesus is explaining the scriptures to them. That's oftentimes how our minds work, isn't it? We learn progressively. Our, our minds are open. Our eyes are open progressively. As a good example, I'm currently taking a class in biblical theology, and there was a concept we were talking about in class. It was also in the textbook, and I think it was the third time I read it that to me it made sense, and suddenly there was this moment, aha, I get it. Sometimes it takes a lot more than three times reading it. You get the idea, though. We're, we're kind of thick-headed sometimes that it takes us a while to get stuff. And maybe somebody's explained it to you five or ten times, and you're still saying, I don't quite get it. And then that 11th time or 12th time, oh, it suddenly makes sense. Okay, the pieces have finally come together. That's what's happening for these disciples. Jesus is giving them the pieces, and they're now starting to come together and starting to make sense. They're going from confusion to clarity. And in so doing, they're going to find joy and eternal peace is found in Jesus. 
Finally, though, not only do they travel from Jerusalem to Emmaus, not only do they go from confusion to clarity, but finally they go from grief to gladness. From grief to gladness. The sadness, which was so evident upon their faces that even a stranger could recognize it, is absolutely transformed here. And isn't it amazing what a difference the truth makes? Look at verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is like, I'm just going to keep going. I'll see you guys later. And they're like, whoa, no, whoa, wait a second. And I imagine that their reason for asking him to stay is not just hospitality, although that was an important part of their culture. I think it also had to do with this lesson they were getting. Wait a second. You're telling us things we've never seen before. We've never heard this before. You can't just walk on. You gotta teach us, show us some more. Like we're these pieces are starting to come together, but we need you. So they implore him to stay. Verse 29, they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. So they are successful in convincing Jesus to stay. Now, what time it was, we don't know. Probably late afternoon, maybe. Uh, the point is. It was late enough that they could convince him and say, look, if you keep traveling on, you're going to get stuck in the dark. Just stay with us. And they honor him. They honor Jesus by giving him the duties of the host. You notice in verse 30, it says, It came to pass as he sat at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. That's the job a host would have. But apparently these men are so enamored with this new friend they've made on the road that they give him the job. Okay, you can be the host. I mean, it was... It would have been an honorable role to give him. He takes the bread, he breaks it, and look at what happens. Verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. Go back again to verse 16. Their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they knew him. What a difference is wrought in these men. They go from... Confusion to clarity from now, from grief to gladness. Their hearts are filled because they recognize Jesus and they know him. They know who he is. Now, what prompted this? Well, the Bible says he broke bread. Now, that reminds us of two events from the Bible, if you think about it. It reminds us, first of all, of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus broke bread, distributed it, and it fed 5,000 people. Maybe these disciples were two of the people in that crowd. And that stuck in their mind. The other event, of course, is the Last Supper, when Jesus broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. Now, we don't know if they were there for that. Probably not, because it seems that that was a fairly intimate occasion with Jesus and the Twelve. It may not have been anything physical that Jesus did or said. It may have been a supernatural opening of their eyes. Just like the scales fell from Paul's eyes, when he believed the gospel, so the scales fall from theirs and they recognize Jesus and he disappears from their sight. Just as he appeared in the upper room, he now disappears from them. Oh, but what a change has happened. Look at verse 32. Then they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while, we, while he talked with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us? So now their eyes are open and they recognize there was something different about this guy all along. We knew it. 
Did not our hearts burn as he explained the scriptures? It's pretty key. And this isn't heartburn like you get from eating a couple of tacos. This is an emotional, we might say in modern vernacular, he lit a fire under them. Suddenly that hopeless despair that they were feeling is replaced now with this encouraging hope that, oh wait, what he's saying makes sense. The Messiah did have to suffer and die. The Messiah did rise from the grave, and now they've seen him for themselves. So they don't keep this to themselves. They share it. Verse 33, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. Now, what, what strikes you at verse 33? It says they rose up that very hour. They just told their stranger, hey, it's too late to go on any trips. Stay here. And yet they make the seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem. Now, my guess is this happens late in the afternoon. I think they make pretty good time back to Jerusalem. After all, it was sort of a sad, somber walk to Emmaus. It's a very different story going back. They are doing double time to share this great news. Again, I was thinking of something from my own experience. Uh, again, when we were in Israel, I, we took a hike up Masada. Masada is this mountaintop fortress. There's two ways to get up. You can take a cable car from the bottom, or there's what's called the snake path. Now, it's called the snake path because it winds up the side of the cliff, and it's a long walk. We all decided, of course, to do the snake path rather than the easy tram ride. So we hiked our way up. It took, I was clocking us, it took us about 50 to 51 minutes from the bottom to hike all the way to the top. We get to the top, we explore, we look around, um, get to see everything that's up there. Then we were told the bus is leaving in about 30 minutes. Now the smart thing would be to take the tram down. Did we do that? No. We went back down the snake path. It took me 51 minutes getting up, but knowing that the bus might leave without me, it took me exactly 18 minutes to get down. <laughs> we were moving. <laughs> and I have a feeling that's what the men on the road to Emmaus were doing. Yeah, it took them, 50, it took them several hours, perhaps, to get to Emmaus. It, it didn't take them an hour to get back. They were flying because they had great news to share. And they burst in on the 11, it says, in verse uh, 33. And they were all gathered together. And they said, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they shared it with one another about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. These guys are transformed by the truth. Transformed by it. Their grief is now turned into gladness. Their sadness is now joy. All because they met Jesus on the road. Now, I'm not suggesting that I could have some special answer that's going to just immediately transform all your problems and immediately any depression that you might be facing is gone. But I do know this, there will not be eternal joy and peace in your life without knowing Christ. So I guess the question that's important to ask here is, do you know him? Because perhaps you've been living under that shadow of depression for a while, and I think many people are. I'm not suggesting that you're not a believer, if that's the case. However, we can have joy and peace in truly knowing Christ. And not just 
a temporary peace, not just a, the kind of thing the world is seeking after, an eternal peace, an eternal joy. You know, even, if, even if this life gives us nothing but hardship, we have an eternity of bliss with Jesus, our Savior, ahead. And even if someone has nothing but comfort and ease in this life, but spends eternity apart from Christ, that's a loss. You see, we have an eternal joy, an eternal peace. So whatever it is you might be struggling with, whatever feelings you might have, there's a joy in knowing Christ and walking with him and in serving him. We need to look to him, to meet Christ. I want to close, though, with a couple of important observations from this text. First, knowing, knowing Jesus changes everything. Knowing Jesus changes everything. It did for these disciples. It changed their grief into gladness. It changed their confusion into clarity. It changed these men from sad, fearful disciples to joy-filled witnesses of the resurrection. And I am suggesting this morning that walking with Christ, knowing Christ, changes everything. It really does. If you've never come to trust in Christ as your Savior, this is the morning to do it. We don't know how many days and hours we have, but today the offer is made. Find forgiveness. Find eternal life in Christ. Second, though, not only does knowing Jesus change everything, the scriptures are the key to knowing him. You notice what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus? He meets the two disciples and he doesn't rip off his hood and say, hey guys, it's me. Be filled with joy. Instead, he takes them back to the word of God and says, let me show you. You want to know what all this is about? You want to know what's going on? You want to know and have clarity in your hearts? Let me take you to scripture, to the Bible. The word is the key to knowing Jesus. You want to know Christ? Get in the word. It is here that we come to see Jesus for who he is. It's here that we come to see his glory and splendor. It's here where we see his love and tenderness. It's here that we see all that God wants us to know for life. The scriptures are the key to knowing him. Jesus and knowing him is the, will give us everlasting peace and joy. I want to close finally, though, with a poem that was written centuries ago. A Christian living in the six or seven hundreds A.D. wrote these words that capture, I think, a little bit of the transformation that takes place in these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It starts out like this. The day of resurrection, earth tell it abroad, the Passover of gladness, the Passover of God. From death to life eternal, from this, this world to the sky, our Christ hath brought us over with hymns of victory. Now let the heavens be joyful, let, her earth, let earth her song begin, let the round world keep triumph and all that is therein. Let all these things, seen and unseen, their notes of gladness blend. For Christ the Lord hath risen, our joy that hath no end.